Good morning, Naogeta. Thank you, Liplakam. Uh, despite all the pressures and pleasures for this festive season, we thank God that we are able to spend time in, spend time in this way this morning. Our scripture reading will be taken from uh, the book of Matthew, chapter one. Turn your Bibles with me to uh, Matthew chapter one, verses eighteen to twenty-five. Again, uh, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 reads, Now the birth of Jesus was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her, make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Verse 21. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of, of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Verse 24. Then Joseph, being raised from his sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. And this is the word of the Lord. I invite you to come to the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, this morning. And uh, a few of you that slipped in a little bit late, greetings. Glad that you guys are here. Uh, Mom and Dad, welcome back. Uh, if you see the two of them falling asleep during the service, they've been on the flight all night long, just coming in this morning from Manila. And so if you see them falling asleep, just look at I'm glad you guys are back. Welcome back, guys, and uh, the rest of you. I, I might make mention again, if you don't mind, join me in prayer for uh, our decision as we look to bring Brother Eric on as a pastor. I count it a privilege to be your pastor. I don't take that lightly. I believe that this is a high calling and it's a, uh, a responsibility for us as a church body. The scripture uses the phrase, mark no man suddenly. In other words, as we look to take on Brother Eric as another pastor, we are not doing that lightly. Uh, we don't just grab someone and make them to be our pastor. You say, pastor, why are, you, why are you hammering this? Because the day will come when I'm not here. I plan, Lord willing, to be with you for another 25 years. But the day will come when I'm not going to be here. And I pray that when that day comes, when it comes time to bring on a pastor, that you do it prayerfully. And that you don't do it quickly. Take your time. Pray through it. Why is there safety in having a plurality of pastors? There is safety because 
if the Lord so chooses to take me before 25 years, that that transition happens smoothly. That there isn't a big hiccup in the church for 10 years, washes around and tries to find somebody to take my place. My prayer is that that transition will be smooth. I look forward, if the Lord will permit, I look forward in 25 years from now, moving from the front of the church to a rocking chair in the back of the church and being a grumpy old man in the back. That's what I'm looking forward to. And that that transition just happens smoothly. And the day comes when the future pastor of Capital City Baptist Church lays my body to rest, that there is no major hiccup in leadership. I know that I will have done my job properly if that happens. And so this is, as we prayerfully consider bringing Brother Eric on now, this is a major step towards that day that will come down the road. No matter what you do, you cannot put off death. It will happen. But you can do a lot of things before you get there to prepare things so that when that happens, the transition happens smoothly. And so I ask you again, pray with me as we look forward to the first Sunday in, in January to bring that vote before the church. Matthew chapter 1. Each one of our Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each one of the Gospels comes with its own unique perspective. Uh, Matthew does as well. Last week we saw the Gospel of John. John wrote for a purpose, John chapter 20 and verse 31, these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And John wrote for that purpose. Matthew writes for a similar purpose from a different perspective. And I think that we're going to get a chance to see that this morning. As I develop that idea, I want you to understand a little bit about Matthew. Just a reminder, in Matthew chapter 9, it tells us that Matthew was sitting at the seat, uh, taking the taxes of the people. He was a tax collector. Throughout the Gospels, another name for the tax collector is a publican. Often, the publicans were considered sinful people. Very good reason for that. You see, Rome had taken Jerusalem, conquered Jerusalem about 60 years before Christ was born. The nation of Israel had really been in turmoil nonstop for about the last 700 years. From the time that Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon came and ran through, and then they had the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, uh, and now you've got the Romans. And they've been really under turmoil for hundreds of years. 60 years under Rome. Rome set up a unique system in that uh, Rome really kind of just sent soldiers to keep the peace and then demanded a tribute. So every nation at the time, every nation was commanded to send a tribute back to Rome. You send your tribute, you send your taxes, they'll leave you alone. You don't send your taxes, here come more soldiers. You'll send your taxes next year. That's the way things worked. And the tax collectors were those men in those different places who were to take up those taxes. They were given the ability and the authority. They were given the might from the Roman soldiers. And so here are the soldiers that were at the disposal of the tax collectors to enforce that they're taking the taxes. So not only did Rome get the money, they also provided the manpower by which to force the people to pay their taxes. 
Here's how things got really sticky. Matthew is us place. So it's not just you go and you pay your taxes to Rome, it's you go and you pay your taxes to the hand of one of your one-talks, who will then give the money on. What's worse than giving the money to a foreign nation is giving it to the hand of someone that speaks your language. He was seen as a hated man. In fact, the tax collectors knew that they were hated men. These publicans, they knew that nobody liked them, so they knew also that they've got the power of the military behind them, so they would demand the taxes plus. You see, if you're not going to get on with the rest of the people in your community, you might as well build a little wealth off of it. And so he could buy what he wanted because he took extra taxes. So if the Romans said, take 10%, he'd make it 12, and an extra two went to his pocket. And he had the ability. He was a hated man. And year after year, he sat and collected the taxes and used the Roman soldiers to enforce the tax collection. The people hated him more and more. And then came the day that Jesus walked by his table. That was in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus walked by, and the words of Jesus to Matthew, the interaction in the book of Matthew is so short, I find it to be absolutely amazing. Jesus walks by the table, looks at Matthew, you might know him as Levi, Matthew Levi, the story shows up in three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and Jesus walks by the table and he says, follow me. That's it. There's no Jesus pulling up a chair and saying, hey, uh, let me show you, because of this and this and this, you need to follow me. No, it's just simply, follow me. And Matthew left everything at the table, got up and followed Jesus. It makes me wonder why. This is just purely speculation. I don't know why Matthew left everything. But if I could just go out on a limb here, this is not in the scriptures, but I just think, okay, if I'm in Matthew's shoes, what would cause me to follow Jesus? And I can't help but wonder, perhaps Matthew has got everything he wants. He's been collecting the taxes. He's got the power. He's been collecting more than the taxes. He's got the money. He's got everything he wants, and I think that perhaps he's found it to be empty. And then perhaps he's been watching Jesus. And here's one who is given of himself, not at all interested in what he can gain for himself. For as Jesus opened the eyes of the blind, imagine if he'd have done it the way that Matthew would have done things. If Matthew had the ability to open the eyes of the blind, he would have said, 150 kina come. Or if he'd have had the power to cast out demons, so oh, that one has its own price, and heal the lame, it has its own price but that's not how Jesus operated. You see, Christ went about giving of himself and loving others, and Matthew goes, that's different. It's caught Matthew's attention by no doubt, and so when Jesus comes by and says, follow me, Matthew's heart has already been a yearning for something greater than what he's ever had at this table, and he left all. He forsook all, and he followed Jesus. He's now writing this gospel, having spent a few years with Jesus, seen Christ on the cross, watched Him resurrect, 
sat with the disciples or the apostles in the upper room, watched the Holy Spirit fall, watched the beginning of the church, and now he comes back to write. Here's the story of Jesus, and I think he's doing this from the perspective of a Jewish man who knows the Old Testament prophecies. And he's writing in a way to say unto the Jewish people, who is Jesus? Do you want to know who he is? I'll tell you. And he's going to do that throughout our passage today. And I think that this is such a very important question for you and I today. Not just for Jewish people in that day, but it's a very important question for us today. Who is Jesus? If you spend much time on social media, you'll find that there are people that fall on very opposite extremes when you talk about Jesus. All you've got to do is throw his name up there and you're going to have people that will get behind him and love him and you'll get other people on the other end of the extreme that absolutely hate Jesus and anything to do with him. Just this week, I read someone made a statement on social media and he said this, he said, there is no evidence of Jesus ever living outside the four Gospels. I just didn't respond because you answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou be lumped in together with him. So I didn't respond, but I thought to myself, you're a fool, friend. For there's plenty of evidence of Jesus outside of the four Gospels. And even if that was all we have, was the four Gospels to point us at Jesus, those four Gospels are a part of the inerrant, inspired Word of God. God Himself has shown us who Jesus is. The poor fool has done nothing but regurgitate what he's heard from someone else. Perhaps you watched the movies, or maybe you've read the books, The Chronicles of Narnia. The guy that wrote those books, C.S. Lewis, was a Christian apologist, and he made this statement. I'll read it for you. It's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to listen to what he had to say. C.S. Lewis writes this in his book, Mere Christianity. He writes this. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. People often say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. And so he's pushing back against that statement. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man Jesus was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him the Lord and God. But let us not come with any nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend it. So either Jesus was a long, long, or he was the devil in disguise, or he is the Son of God as he claimed. And I hope that as we spend time together in the scriptures that you'll see this. Matthew definitely addresses it. And he does it right from the beginning of his book, Matthew chapter 1. I plan to walk through chapter 1 with you this morning. And I'll show you the very first one is the reason for his writing, the reason for Matthew's gospel. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 1. 
the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you're not careful, you'll start into verse 2 and think that he's just continuing on a lineage. But he's given us, head talk, he's given us the overview and verse 1 of where he's headed. This is his head talk in verse number 1. The book to come, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Let me go ahead and make a statement to this. The word Christ means Messiah. So the word Messiah seen throughout the Old Testament is the word Christ that we see in the New Testament. And I want you to pay attention as we walk through Matthew chapter 1 today. I want you to see how many times whenever Matthew refers to him, he doesn't just refer to him as Jesus, but he refers to him as Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So here, Matthew, a Jewish man writing to Jewish people, points directly in his opening sentence to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. So this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now that's two very important statements. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now he's going to go lineage in verse 2 and following, but in verse 1 he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. So God made a promise to David in the Old Testament, and that promise had to do with a throne. I'll, I'll share with you. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. And he, here's what God said to David, promise. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. In other words, all the way back in 2 Samuel, God made a promise to David, a king will sit on your throne forever. Human kings cannot do that. Human kings can sit on a throne maybe 70 years if they got lucky and they were king at 20 and died at 90. But most kings cannot live that long and most kings will not rule for that long so when he says, this king will sit on your throne forever, he's pointing forward to the day when the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and he will rule and he will reign forever. For with him will be no end of life. He has already gone to the cross and resurrected. So here we have, in Matthew's opening statement, the book of the generation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of David... So we might as well substitute the word king here. And then he goes on further. There was a promise made to Abraham, the son of Abraham. And maybe you remember the promise that God made to Abraham. This was Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3. God said to Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So God called Abraham from Ur of Chaldees. He became the first Jewish man, the first Hebrew man, the father of many nations. One of those nations was Israel. And here is the father of the Jews, through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And if I won't take the time to develop this, but I'll just point right at it. How is it that all of the families of the earth are blessed now? That's through Jesus. So Jesus went to the cross so that every single one of us will be part of his family. And here he says, 
the king promised to David of the Jews promised to Abraham. And here's Matthew starting off the reason for his gospel is to show that Jesus is the Messiah. The Jewish people know these prophecies. By the way, Matthew does an amazing job as he walks through his gospel of developing these prophecies from the Old Testament. He has so many, 53 references to the Old Testament are quoted in the gospel of Matthew. Unbelievable as he takes these Old Testament statements and puts them together. In the first two chapters of Matthew, five of them just points straight up and says, and this was that. We talked about that last week, how important that is. And then I walk through the book of Matthew and watch as he develops this further. You can turn with me, keep a finger in Matthew 1, turn with me over to Matthew 16 and watch as Jesus himself claims who he is. So this is Matthew 16 and verse number 13. He's there sitting with the apostles, the disciples at the time. Verse 13, Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Can you imagine this moment as Jesus sits with the disciples? Hey guys, what are you hearing? Who do people say that I am? And they begin to answer, verse 14. They said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he stopped them. All right, now that's what everybody else had to say. Okay, what about you? Verse 15. But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed that to you, but who? My Father, which is in heaven. For those poor people who think Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God, they just forgot to read that verse. Because Jesus just said, Yes, my Father, which is in heaven, revealed to you the fact that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then you can slide your eyes down to verse 20. Then charged he his disciples that he should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Of all the things that you can talk to people about, let's just downplay the Messiah for a little while, guys. The day will come when you'll be my witnesses, but just not right now. Then you can slide over to chapter 22. This subject comes up again, and Matthew intentionally records this in his gospel who is Jesus. Matthew 22, the Pharisees are going to try to ask some questions of him. They've been trying to trick him up by asking some questions, and so Jesus turns it around and asks a question to them. Matthew 22 and verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ, whose son is he? When he asked that question, he's not asking them, Who do you think Jesus is? He's asking them, who do you think Christ is? Who do you think the Messiah is? Whose son is the Messiah? They respond. They say unto him, the son of David. Pause. Remember Matthew's opening words. The genealogy, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So here's Matthew. What I'm doing is I'm showing you. Weave together the pieces as Matthew puts them on display. Whose son is 
the Christ, and they said the son of David. So this would be the very, you might say, enemies of Jesus are confessing the fact that the Christ is the son of David. Now verse, 20, uh, verse 43, he said unto them, How then does David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? Jesus just popped one on their minds that's going to cause their minds to just go, they don't know how to handle this. If if the Messiah is the son of David, how can David call him Lord? Because in their society, you don't call your future generation by a title that gives them authority over your life. You and pick an emblem. You know that one. You miss a talk, Big Papa. How does David call his descendant Lord? And yet Christ calls their mind back to the Old Testament when David said, the Lord said to my Lord, my descendant, sit thou at my right hand. And Jesus just makes their mind just scramble in all kinds of ways as Jesus says it again. The Christ is the son of David. They didn't even bother to ask him any questions any further. Verse 46, no man was able to answer him a word Neither durst any man. They didn't even bother to ask him from that day forward any more questions. So even those who opposed him had to admit the son of David is the Messiah. Then Jesus himself in chapter 28, if you'll just come to that one and we'll go back to Matthew 1, and Jesus himself at the end of his earthly ministry before ascending back up to heaven, he's meeting with his disciples in Galilee. This is Matthew chapter 28, and Jesus with his own words describing himself Matthew 28, Jesus came and spake unto them. This is verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Who is he? He's the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of God. He holds all power in earth and in heaven. So what should I do with that? If you'll just allow me for a moment, application, what do I do with that? If I, in 2023, not a Jew, but a Gentile, if I know that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, what should I do with that? Well, he gives us exactly what to do with it. You're right there in Matthew 28, verse 19, what do I do with it? Well, go. Go you therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. All power is given unto Him. Given by whom? It wasn't given by the disciples. It wasn't given by the Pharisees. It wasn't given by the devil. It wasn't given by us. It was given by His Father in heaven. He has all power. He is the Messiah. And He can change your life, and He can change your eternity. Matthew has shown us this. Who is Jesus? You can come back to chapter 1 with me. Who is Jesus? He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. He's evidenced it by Himself. He's evidenced it by His Father. At the baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. 
It's evidenced by the Pharisees. It was evidenced by his resurrection. It's evidenced even by his genealogy. And that's what we're going to see in verse 2, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. I'm not going to read all of this genealogy. I'll just point at a few things. I'll read a few verses. I'll point at a few things throughout this genealogy. There's a couple of things that I think Matthew is doing with this genealogy, and so I'll point those out. Let me make a statement to this. For the ancient Jewish people, their lineage was very important. Every person knew his lineage, as opposed to you and I. I'll be honest, I know who my father is. I knew my grandfather. I know my grandfather's dad's name. But we go beyond that, I have no clue. I'm sure I could research and find those details. It does not impact my life. I've never had to fill out a CV and write down who the last seven generations of my family were. (laughs) There's no use for it. Perhaps for you, in the importance of land within Papua New Guinea, perhaps that would be an important thing for your family and the lineage. For the Jewish people, they traced it. They knew it. You might remember the Apostle Paul giving a little bit of his own lineage. I think that was in 2 Corinthians, maybe chapter 14, where he talks about, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day. He's giving his lineage. He's showing who he is and why it's so important. And for the Jewish people, this was very important. And so if we were to say, if you're going to outline the king of the Jews and who he is, it's definitely important that he's the son of David, and that lineage gets written out here. We get to see it. I'll point out a couple of them. Look at verse 1 again. Book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the king, the son of Abraham, the Jews. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judah and his brethren. And you'd recognize those names, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Judah and the twelve. That's his pedigree. If you've been If you're being introduced at that time to Jesus for the first time, you don't know who he is, these details are very important. Who is he? Where did he come from? This is the lineage of a king, and there are powerful names in this list. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Genesis 49, verse 10. From the tribe of Judah, the scepter of the king will not depart. And so that every king for this nation must come from the tribe of Judah. It's important that you trace down through that. There's recognizable names in this list. You can see them in verse 6. Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon. You'd recognize those names. And there are some names that you might have a hard time pronouncing. See them in verse 13. And Zerubbabel begat Ebiad, and Ebiad begat... Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor. They're names in a list that we don't really know a whole lot about. Not only do I have a hard time pronouncing their names, honestly, I can't tell you much about them. But they're in this list, this lineage that is his CV. This is telling who he is. But it's important, I want you to note verse 16, as we come close to Jesus. The wording in verse 16 is very important. Look at verse 16. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, 
who is called Christ. Did you catch that? Just glance down, verse 2 to verse 16, and I want you to see how many times the word begat shows up. Begat, 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 begat. Everybody's begat. But verse 16, it changed. Verse 16, we got real close to Jesus being born. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. You know what Matthew very intentionally did not say? He did not say, Jacob begat Joseph and Joseph begat Jesus. He intentionally did not say that. You know why? Because Jesus was not born of an earthly father. He's born of the heavenly father. His father is God Almighty, not Joseph. Sorry, Joseph, you're going to be the stepdad. Joseph will raise him, and no doubt Joseph will raise him well. I have no doubt that Joseph was a good man. In fact, I'm going to prove it to you in the coming verses. But I want you to understand this. Joseph was not his dad. Joseph just happened to be married to the woman who was his mom. And this lineage traces down through to Joseph. And and this is going to be something that he's going to carry. Joseph is going to carry this. Mary's going to carry this. Jesus is going to carry this. I'll show it to you in a minute. This is going to be important for Jesus' life. It's going to be important for Joseph and Mary's testimony. And yet, Matthew's careful to make sure that when he words it, he words it intentionally. Now, when you put forth your CV, you put forward the good parts, right? I hope that if you're 19 years old or older, that you have written a CV. If you have not written a CV, come and see me. I will help you, okay? You need a CV that shows these are all the things I've done in my life. Now, if you've written a CV, you'll understand what I'm talking about here, all right? When you write your CV, you put in it the highlights. I was duck set, buddy Hagua. I was, you put all the highlights. If you happen to spend four years in Bomana, you leave that out. You follow me? If you, need to, if you need to account for those four years, you might just put nation building and character development. You might get a little creative. You might leave off the location. And so when you're developing a CV, you put the highlights in and you leave the negative parts out. Jesus, in his CV did not leave out the negative parts. He left the negative parts in. I'll, I'll point at them. I want you to see these, because this is pretty amazing. When, if if you, this was your CV for your family lineage, your family lineage, if you had uh, my great uncle is the, or was the minister of ministries, <laughs> I pick one because we're adding new ones all the time. <laughs> my great uncle was the minister of ministries, And my auntie, first flight attendant on Air New Guinea. (laughs) You know what? You're going to put those in there, right? But your nephew that's a rascal, leave him out. Don't talk about him. Jesus has the good and the bad. Here comes. Look at verse 3. Because we had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah... And that started off really well in verse 2. Now look at verse 3. And Judah begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. 
I won't take long to develop the story. This was in Genesis 38. You can go read it on your own time. But the story there, Tamar dressed up like a prostitute so that she could trick Judah, her father-in-law, into sleeping with her. And she intentionally got pregnant so that she could blackmail him. If you're writing your lineage, you might want to just strike that. But there it is. Not just Judah begat Perez and Zerah, but begat Perez and Zerah of Tamar. Then we come down to verse 5. And Salmon begat Booz, that's Boaz, that's not fire water. <laughs> not Booz, but Boaz. Begat Boaz of Rahab. And again, I won't develop the story, but Joshua chapter 2 tells us that everybody in the community knew that Rahab was a prostitute. If that's in your family tree, you might conveniently figure out a way to just cut that branch off. Let's not talk about that going forward. Verse 5 again. And Salmon begat Boaz of Rahab, Boaz begat Obed of Ruth. Ruth, the Moabitess. And we walked through Ruth's story, and that was a beautiful love story, but let's be honest, she's got the wrong bloodlines in order to be in the king's lineage. And then verse 6, I think, is by far the worst. And I want you to see the wording. The wording, he's just going to put it out there. Here's verse 6. Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. We didn't even get her name. That's Bathsheba. We didn't get Bathsheba's name, but we got Bathsheba's former husband's name. He didn't just not shy away. He put it right there and plastered it on the front and said, oh, by the way, this guy Uriah, not related, but definitely slighted. Here is these Jewish readers, as they're reading down through this lineage, I think they would have bowed in shame for a moment of silence for the guy that's in this lineage that's not related, but he's listed. I can just imagine how much shame that brings to the forefront. Uriah, Uriah is dead because David is an adulterous murderer, and Judah is an incestuous womanizer. Ruth, wrong ethnicity. Rahab, terrible past. Tamar? Shame on you, Tamar. But I see Jesus just embracing this. You know what he's doing? He's saying, that's my family. These are my moms and my grandmas. And there's a David and a Judah in my lineage that you might think well of, but I've got no problem putting out in the forefront that David was a fallen sinner that needed his story redeemed. And Judah was a fallen sinner in need of redemption as well. And by the way, let me start off with an entire gospel and just tell you, I'm looking for sinners to redeem their stories. You can be a part of my family too. What a glorious picture coming out of the beginning of the book. He proudly proclaims them. These are my family. Come with me into verse number 18. We'll see the last eight, last eight verses of chapter 1. And I want to reflect here on a questionable birth. Jesus, who is he? He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. He himself is perfect and holy and sinless. 
but he's a friend of sinners. There's a questionable birth that's going to show up here in these last eight verses. And I think that it's worth stating this as we get into verse 18. I have no doubt that God chose Joseph and Mary for a good reason. It's going to say it in verse 19. Uh, Joseph is a just man. Mary, chosen woman. But I want to remind you that even those of us that are at our best are still fallen sinners, still in need of a Savior. And so keep that in mind as we watch a commendable man handle a difficult situation. Here's verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. This is how it happened. Did you notice he slipped in Christ again? The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. We saw this last week in the book of Luke as the angel came to Mary and said, you're going to be with child. And she says, I've never been with a man. She's a virgin. And this is going to be in fulfillment of Isaiah 7 and verse 14. A virgin will be with child and she'll bring forth a son. Not one miracle, two. See a miracle happen here as God brings forth his son through a virgin. And now Joseph is the other half of that equation. See, Joseph is espoused to her You see that in verse 18, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she's found with child of the Holy Ghost. A quick ancient Jewish lesson here in how marriage came to be. They had two steps in marriage. In that day, there were two steps. The first was the espousal, or we might say engagement, and then there was the wedding. Now, the wedding was very public. The wedding would sometimes last for seven days. And you might remember John 4, Jesus at the wedding at Cana. That wedding went so long that the people who were supposed to prepare for the wedding ran out of wine. The people were there for so long. Seven days is a normal wedding in that time. This is a very public thing and the people are rejoicing. This isn't just two families getting together. But the espousal was two families. His and her parents, her, his mom and dad, her mom and dad. The two couples' parents would come together and they would agree. And many times that was the time when they would pay the equivalent of a bride price at that time. And there would be anywhere from six months to a year between the espousal and the wedding. A big reason for that is to just make sure she's not pregnant. If you paid the bride price and then you found out afterwards, wait a second, there's some other guy involved. It's going to get awkward. And so Mary and Joseph are already espoused to be married. And yet within that culture, once espoused, or we would say once engaged, they're considered married. They will not consummate the marriage until the wedding. It's their culture. And so here at espousal, they've got that six months to one year waiting period. Bride price is already paid. Everything is set, just looking forward to the date. Perhaps that time also gives the dad... uh, an ability to put together the feast. Let's get everything ready for the wedding. 
And it's during that time that the Holy Spirit comes to Mary. Mary undoubtedly goes to Joseph and says, by the way, you're going to find out that I'm pregnant. I want you to hear it from me first. Joseph goes, wait a second. I can just imagine in Joseph's mind as he's trying to reconcile these things. Perhaps he's already paid the bride price. Can you imagine what an awkward moment this is for Joseph? By the way, in the history of mankind, virgin birth, no such thing. It's impossible. And so Joseph's beginning to think this through. This doesn't, she's not a promiscuous woman. This doesn't fit with her character. This isn't. But he also knows Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 and 24 says that if he takes her before the elders of the city, they're to stone him. The passage in Deuteronomy isn't just about her, it's about her and whatever the, whoever the guy is. And so both are to be stoned publicly, and Joseph doesn't want that. I think he cares about her deeply. And so what's he going to do? We just read verse 18. When his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then, verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, remember how I said they're considered husband, wife. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. In other words, he decides, I, I think that probably the best thing to do is just quietly, we're just going to dissolve this whole espousal thing. I'm not going to demand the money back. Just, just put her off. I don't know who's going to take care of her, but obviously there's something wrong here. He's struggling internally. What do I do with this? And by the way, this story will follow the three of them for the rest of their lives. Do you remember how the people spoke about Jesus? Is this not the son of Mary? Is this not the one who Mary had a child before she was married? This is public knowledge. And... I believe Joseph, probably dead by the time Jesus' 30th birthday comes around and before he begins his public ministry, I can only imagine if that story followed Mary, it must have followed Joseph as well. It's going to cost him to take care of Mary. This just does not make sense. Agony in his soul. Verse 20. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, a son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. I can just imagine, as he's getting this vision, I can just imagine he must have just gone, whoo, that's what she said, and now you're saying it. I'm good to go. This is going to be great. 
She shall bring forth a son. Here's the angel still speaking. She shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for she, he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and she shall call his name, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted as God with us. Two names. Did you see the two names? You're going to call him, they will call him. Verse 21, they, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Why? For he shall save his people from their sins. Mary, a sword will pierce your soul. and He's going to save his people from their sins. The other name, Emmanuel, they shall call him Emmanuel. Verse 23, his, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. Who is Jesus? He's the Savior. Who is Emmanuel? That's God with us. We need Him to be at peace with us because from the time that we fell in sin in the garden, He's been at enmity against us. Now we get to have God with us. Oh, Jesus is God in the flesh. He came and put on the robes of flesh so that He might taste death for you and I. You can't kill God. But if God becomes a man, He can die. A perfect sacrifice on our behalf so that we can be made right with God. God with us. God puts on flesh, becomes a man so that He can live as a man with us. Amen. Oh, He's not our enemy anymore. He's come to make us at peace with Him. And then verse 24, Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel, had, uh, angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till he had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. As I studied this passage, I was so tempted to make this sermon about Joseph. I was so tempted. Verse 19, he's a just man. Verse 19, her husband. Verse 18, before they had come together. Verse 24, he took her to wife, but verse 25, knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son. He lived with her, married, and made no demands upon her. What a guy. And I'm so tempted to make the sermon about Joseph, but this passage is not about Joseph, it's about Jesus. And so as I look at this passage, I see who is Jesus. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah who is intimidated by the way that men, who is not intimidated by the way that men mess up their lives, but instead he steps in and he changes their lives because of his life. And so if I were to give a closing application this morning, I might ask where you are. Are you a follower of Jesus? Are you a believer in the Lord Jesus? You remember the words of John chapter 1 and verse 12? We saw these last week. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. I wonder if you've received him. I wonder if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus. And if you have then His commands of Matthew 28, I've already read them, His commands should echo in your mind. 
Here's the words again. This is Matthew 28 and verse 18. Jesus said unto them, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So if He's the Son of God, and if He's the Messiah, and if He's saved your soul from eternal punishment, and if He's saved your soul in this life from sin, then you would only make sense that you would follow His commands. So take His Gospel. Tell of who He is to the nations. Do you hear echoes of last week's words, Romans 15, that the Gentiles might glorify Him for His mercy? We've been tasked with this. Take His glory to the nations. And I might ask the opposite question. Do you find yourself this morning as a downcast sinner? Maybe as we walked through the lineage, maybe you find yourself not so much associating with David and with those kings, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but perhaps maybe you find yourself more truthfully aligned with sinners. And I wonder if maybe at your heart this morning you might say things like, I just don't see how he would ever want me to be a part of his family. Can I give you a word of encouragement this morning? Oh, he calls for you to come to him. He draws in. I want to close with one verse. I started at the beginning with Matthew. You remember how Matthew was the tax collector? And the call of God, Jesus calls him at the table, follow me. We talked about that at the beginning. Matthew is the one that writes this book. And he wrote about how Jesus called him to follow him in Matthew 9 and verse 9. Now, I think that this is significant. You see, Matthew, of all of the disciples, you've got Peter and John, they're fishermen. You've got all the other disciples. Philip, he's thinking on the Messiah when Christ calls him. Matthew, stealing from people when Jesus calls him. I think Matthew is the lowest of the low in their society. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. It's no mistake that in Matthew chapter 9, in verse 9, Matthew writes his own story. He says, Jesus told me to follow him. And in the next verse, the rest of the story fleshes out, and I get some of this also from Mark and from Luke, but when Jesus called Matthew to follow him, Matthew left the table, and Matthew invited Jesus to his house. That Jesus, would you come to my house? And Matthew put on a big spread. He put a feast out, and he said, let's eat together. And Jesus sat in a publican's house, ate with sinners, In that moment, while they're eating, the Pharisees happen to walk past the house. I can only imagine the Pharisees must have been standing off on the side anyway, watching to see what Jesus... They like to try to trick him up. And they're standing off on the side. I can't help but wonder, did they follow down to Matthew's house? They know whose house this is. 
They walked out. They won't have anything to do with it. In fact, I submit that they probably didn't even go inside the house. I think they stood outside the house and stuck their head in. And this is Matthew 9, verses 11 and 12. Verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Do you know what Jesus just said to those Pharisees who thought they had everything together and they thought they didn't need redemption? You know what Jesus said? I came to help people. The ones that are the low, they're downcast. I came to save their souls. I came for the Rahabs. You see, Rahab needed a physician, and Ruth and Tamar needed a physician, and David and Judah needed a physician, and I needed a physician, someone to heal my soul. And friend, you need a physician, someone that will heal your soul. So could I ask you to bow with me this morning, our Heavenly Father? Thank you for sending the Lord Jesus perfect, sinless life. Thank you for sending Jesus to a manger. Thank you for sending Jesus to the cross. Thank you that the Lord Jesus takes our sin and welcomes us into his family if we will but trust in him. So this morning in a moment of quiet reflection, I pray that you would do a work and draw people to yourself. I want to ask you this morning before you open your eyes, could I ask you this morning, are you right with Jesus? Have you put your trust in the Lord Jesus? For as many as receive Him, they'll be made sons of God. I wonder this morning, have you put your trust in Jesus? If you're here this morning and say, Pastor, I've put my trust in Jesus and I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of the family of God and to call Him my brother. You know for sure, you died today, you go to heaven. Would you raise your hand? Pastor, I know I'm a believer. I put my trust in Jesus. Just raise your hand. I see hands all over the room this morning. That's awesome. I know I'm a, I'm a believer. I'm following Jesus, no doubt about it. Thank you. I want to ask the other way. Perhaps you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I've never put my trust in Jesus, but I'd like to do that this morning, and I'd like to talk to somebody about it. Would you just raise your hand? Just slip your hand up, say, Pastor, I'd like to put my trust in Jesus this morning. Can I talk with somebody about that? And I have to raise it high so I can see you. Is there anybody like that? Say, Pastor, I am one of those lowly sinners that needs Jesus to save me. And I'd love to get that right today. Is there somebody like that? I want to encourage you, if you're like that today, just wait around. I'm going to be at the back. I'll shake hands with people as they're going out. And if you'll just intentionally wait, let them go ahead and then stop and tell me, Pastor, can I talk? I'll be happy to help you. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, the Son of David, Son of Abraham, Son of God, Messiah and Redeemer of my soul, friend of sinners. God, I want to thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to take our place on the cross. And Lord, would you bless your people? 
Thank you for the opportunity to spend time worshiping your name this morning. It's in your beautiful name I ask these things. Amen. The Lord bless you, church. Have a blessed week.